Anybody here excited about the Super Bowl? Excited about the Super Bowl? A quick, oh, really, okay. How about like the halftime show or the commercials? You're excited about that? Quick Google search this week. Uh, apparently there's 200 million people who are tuning in to the Super Bowl this year. But an interesting fact, did you know what the first worldwide broadcast was. So 200 million people today, worldwide broadcast of the Super Bowl. Do you know what the first worldwide broadcast through television, what it actually was? Here's a hint. It wasn't a Super Bowl broadcast. It was not the moon landing. It was a song performed by a band from the UK that reached 400 million people. So like two Super Bowls worth of people. On June 25th, 1967, the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love, in front of a worldwide audience. A multitude of nations singing along, a lengthy list of celebrities that made appearances, people with signs and placards all around the world that said, all you need is love. And the Beatles were trying to spread a very specific message, namely that the remedy to all war and cruelty and violence and injustice and inequity is love. As the song said, love is everything, love can do anything. Therefore, all humanity's problems can be solved if we simply loved each other more. Which begs a question. Were the Beatles, the Abbey Road boys, were they right? Is love all we need? Is it that easy? On the one hand, you could make a case that they were on to something because love is at the holy epicenter of the Christian faith. We are saved because God so loved the world that he sent his son. And the world will see our faith, the faith in the gospel, as we love one another. However, I'm fairly certain that the love that the Beatles sang about bears very little in common with the love that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he dictated this letter and sent these words to Rome. As Pastor Adam pointed out last week, these believers in Rome that received this letter were living under the subjugation of a military machine, a cruel empire led by a ruthless Caesar called Nero. And yet Paul urged these believers living in the shadow of this oppressive, unjust empire to overcome evil through love. And you know what? The way that these followers of Jesus actually took these words seriously and lived their lives out in love did revolutionize the Roman Empire. The way they loved literally disrupted the course of history as we know it. But don't take this preacher's word for that. Why don't you take the word of an atheistic 
historian named Tom Holland who wrote a book called Dominion. Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, an atheistic secular historian set out to trace the influence of Christianity throughout history and how it shapes so many of our values and our social imagination. So the book is called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Do you want to listen to what Tom Holland says about how Christianity influenced the world? This is what he said. I think I have this quote in the slides back there. To be Christian is to believe that God became man and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what has always been the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity and the civilization to which it gave birth. Today, the power of this strangeness remains as live as ever as it has been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that swept Africa and Asia over the past century in the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the Spirit like a living fire still blows upon the world and in Europe and North America in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian, all are heirs to the same revolution, a revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. Not bad. By the way, Tom Holland, raised by Anglican parents, has since come to faith in Christ since he read this book by the sheer witness of how Christians took the message of the cross and lived it out. Okay? In a recent interview with N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, Tom Holland likened the theology and the life of the Apostle Paul, listen to this, to a depth charge dropped beneath the turbulent sea of the Greco-Roman culture. The explosion, Holland said, was not felt immediately, but the ripple effects utterly transformed the Western world as we know it over the course of the last 11 centuries. And the, rip, the reason that these ripple effects are still revolutionizing communities and lives all across our world today is this, folks. The love of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful, disruptive force on the face of the earth. Today, as we jump back into Romans 13, we're gonna learn together what happens when this depth charge goes off in our own hearts. You ready? No? Okay. (laughs) Go in there anyways. Romans chapter 13, we're gonna jump back in in verse eight this morning. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wait from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. Isn't it surprising that Paul would turn his focus and his attention to love after dealing with how you and I ought to be submitted to governing authorities? I mean, don't you find all manner of love welling up in your heart when you think about paying your taxes and submitting to the government? I find this pivot intriguing, intriguing, that Paul turns his attention to this exhortation to love. However, what's so fascinating and brilliant about Paul's decision to focus on love in the passage we read is according to historians, Rome was not revolutionized by Christians who took to the streets and violent political protest, storming the capital of the day or refusing to pay their taxes. The thing that revolutionized Rome and gave rise to Western society as we know it was a revolution of love. Now, this is one of those places in Scripture that, quite frankly, must sound so strange to someone who is unfamiliar with the Christian concept of love. And quite honestly, the things that Paul says in this passage, they disrupt us because they run against the grain of so many of our modern notions of love. It is a disruptive love that Paul describes in this letter. So if you find yourself disrupted in any way by this passage, that's actually a really good thing. That just means you're feeling the ripple effects of this depth charge. The love of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful, disruptive thing on the face of the earth. Now this morning, if you're a note taker, Paul's gonna draw our attention to three unique facets of this disruptive love. He's gonna show us that Christian love is marked by indebtedness, obedience, and expectancy. An indebtedness, an obedience, and a divine expectancy. First and foremost, Paul shows us the Christian love is marked by a unique sense of indebtedness to others. In verse 8 that we read a moment ago, Paul said, Owe no one anything except to 
love each other. Or as my old NIV Bible puts it, and I prefer this, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now, let's be honest. On the surface, this is a really odd way to encourage a group of people to love one another because most of our notions of debt are really negative. In fact, maybe you've heard a Christian teacher use this verse to say that Christians should never be in any kind of debt ever. And while there are many guidelines in scripture that, that teach us to be wise when we borrow or when we lend and to avoid certain kinds of debt, you just need to know this. Paul's primary aim here in Romans 13 is not to impart a financial lesson. It's to impart a love lesson. In fact, it's important to see the context of Paul's argument. He's really concluding an exhortation that he started back in verse 7 that Pastor Adam preached last week. So look at verse 7, where Paul says, Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is is owed honor to whom honor is owed. Then Paul wraps up this exhortation in verse eight by saying, so owe no one anything except one thing, the debt of love. And here's what's so revolutionary about this, this idea that we're actually indebted to love one another, that I actually think that we miss as Western Americans coming to this text. In a Greco-Roman culture, you weren't really expected or obligated to be charitable towards others. We take that for granted because that is a social expectation in our day and age. But you weren't obligated and nobody expected you to actually care for others, especially outside your immediate family, unless it benefited you in some way. You could help someone if it benefited you. In fact, listen to what the Greek poet Hesiod wrote about 700 BC. Listen to these words. He said, give to him who gives, but do not give to him who does not give in return. So give to him who gives to you, but don't give to him who can't give you something back. It was a retribution idea of I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll help you if you help me. That was the commonly accepted social ethic of Rome in Paul's day and age. They simply had no category for helping the poor and marginalized. They had no category for it. Now contrast this commonly accepted social ethic with the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, verses 30 to 35, let's go there. If you want to turn left in your Bible, Gospel of Luke chapter 6, verses 30 and 35. These, this is Jesus' social ethic that he instructed his disciples with and us. Give to everyone 
who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish what others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Friends, this is the love that revolutionized Rome. A love that was indebted to all people, irrespective of someone's ethnicity, their gender, their social class, their education level, whether you were rich or poor, powerful or marginalized, Jew or Gentile, Democrat or Republican, friend or enemy. And this is the kind of love that our world so desperately needs to see Jesus' church embody and live out in our day. Amen? Amen? Now, I want you to imagine something to drive this home. I want you to imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ handed you a credit card with no borrowing limit, no interest, and your job was to actually just go out and max out the credit card. That's how Jesus wants us to love. Like there's no spending limit. Like there's no interest. Because we have a savior that shed his blood to wipe out our debt. So we're supposed to love and be indebted to love others with abandon. But what keeps us from loving this way? Why are we so reluctant, miserly, stingy with our love? Well, if we're being honest, and church is a good place to do that, I think most of us would admit that as fallen people, our proclivity is to actually focus on the debts that others owe us, not the other way around. We focus on what other people owe us. Isn't that our natural inclination to actually go around and to be hyper-tuned in into what others owe us? you and I. Remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 18 of a servant who owed this enormous debt to a king that he could never repay. So massive, no matter how hard the servant worked, he could never pay it off. But then the king who represented God in this parable that Jesus told graciously forgives every penny that this servant owed. Do you remember that what that servant went out and did after being forgiven of this debt? It's 
It's on the screen, Matthew 18, 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Oh, how much damage I've caused when I have allowed that pay-what-you-owe attitude to take root in my own heart. Friends, if we truly consider the debts that Jesus has wiped away, not years ago, last week in our lives, the gospel would set us free from any trace of entitlement or arrogance or smugness or pride. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, I believe, I know, we can become people who learn to love others freely and generously like Jesus, expecting nothing in return. Amen? This is the kind of love that our world so desperately needs to see today. Love that's indebted because of what Jesus done to love others. Secondly, we see in this text, after focusing on this debt of love, this indebtedness, Paul shows us how Christian love is actually expressed through obedience. Through obedience. So back in verse 8, if you drop back into Romans 13, the second half of verse 8, it says that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment, Paul says, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I want to be very clear here. Paul does not say these things and hope that believers will walk away with an obligation to obey every command and guideline that's written in the Old Testament. That is not his intention. And if it were, if that was the case, that anyone here this morning who owns a mixed breed dog, like a Labradoodle, or anyone wearing fabrics made of two different kinds of fiber would be in trouble because of the words of Leviticus 19.19. 19. Do not mate different kinds of animals, Labradoodles. There's a warning right there, okay? Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Don't do it. And do not wear clothing woven with two kinds of material. It's right there in the law of Moses. That's not Paul's intent to, to actually just tell us you need to obey Leviticus 19, 19. Paul's goal was not to actually weigh us down with a lengthy list of rules and rituals to obey. Instead, and, and catch this, this is so important, Paul wants us to see that from the very beginning, the whole purpose of the law was love was love. What Paul wants us to obey is what theologians call the law of love. The law of love, the intent of the law was to move us to a place where we would love God 
and love others. But don't take my words for it. This is Jesus' interpretation and defense that he gives when an expert in the law, a teacher, approaches him and asks him, what's the most important command in the law of Moses? Look at Jesus' reply in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Jesus replies and says to this expert in the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is why Paul can say in verse 8 that the person who loves another has fulfilled the law. That person has fulfilled the whole intent of the law because the purpose of the law was never to weigh us down with rules, rituals. It was to show us how our lives can be ruled by love. How you and I, how we can be ruled by love. Let me show you how Paul illustrates this principle by referencing four thou shall not commands from the Ten Commandments. In verse 9, Paul says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's Paul's reasoning. When we commit adultery or murder or steal or covet, and the list could go on, Paul says, any other commandment, when we sin against our neighbors in these ways, we're failing at love. Because these sins, they not only dishonor God, they harm both ourselves and others when we sin. That's why Paul follows by saying in verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Because anything that we do that disobeys God's commands or causes damage to others is not love. Now, this will not come as a surprise to you, but modern people do not tend to view love this way. In our modern culture, love is viewed as an impulse, primarily. It's something that arises within us that we can't control or repress. Love just wells up, and you and I, were supposed to cast off restraints and give in to whatever impulses come along with it, with very little or no regard to how our decisions impact or harm others. River West, what the world so often calls love in our world today, the Bible calls lawlessness and sin. And if we're ever going to grow up in love, we must be willing to confront the areas of our life where we're sinning against God and others and living lawlessly. 
And to help us do that, Paul instructs us to do two practical things. First, he tells us, cast off your old, sinful, lawless lifestyle. Cast off that old lifestyle. In Romans 13, and starting in verse 12, he says, So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, or some translations say decently, in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. Paul's pulling from the commonly accepted social sins in Rome, and he's saying, cast off that old lifestyle. Cast off those works of darkness. You know, coming out of COVID, a really strange, puzzling thing happened to me. None of my old clothes fit. <laughs> After you and I, we la left the sad pajama phase of the pandemic. Remember the sad pajama phase of the pandemic when we were all in our house. One day I went to my wardrobe and I needed to wear more professional clothes. And I went to try on a shirt that I had worn for years. And I was mystified because COVID had shrunk my clothes. <laughs> so I had to go out and purchase new clothes because the coronavirus virus shrunk my entire wardrobe, all of it. In fact, this morning I ran into someone and they said, is that a new shirt? And truth be told, all of my wardrobe is new since the Delta-like strain of, of the, vi the virus. Like this, I picked this up during like Omicron, like from like Old Navy, you know, all of my clothes are, are new. Now, why would I tell you that? It's because Paul's exhortation, he's essentially saying who you are now, your new identity, listen, your old clothes don't fit you anymore. Cast off the sexual immorality. Cast off this sensuality. Cast off this quarreling and jealousy constantly scrolling Instagram and comparing your life to others. Those clothes don't fit you anymore. It's time to throw away some of those old clothes in the trash and put on some new clothes. Something Paul calls the armor of light. This beautiful, provocative, poetic picture of a person, Jesus Christ. Paul says, cast off your old clothes and put on Jesus. In verse 14, look, look at this invitation to us today. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Before coming to faith in Christ, St. Augustine had lived the kind of immoral, indecent, sensual life that the Apostle Paul describes here in Romans 13. 
In fact, before his conversion, did you know this? St. Augustine actually had lived with a prostitute right before coming to faith in Christ. Then one day, while he was alone in the garden, the Holy Spirit directed him to read these very verses in Romans 13 that we read this morning, to cast off these works of darkness, this lifestyle of sensuality and and sin, and to put on Christ. And God saved him. Many years later, he was walking down the street, and this woman that he used to live with, this prostitute, began shouting his name, but Augustine just kept on walking. So thinking that Augustine did not hear her, she ran after him and kept shouting his name until she finally caught up with him, looked him in the eye and said, Augustine, it is I. To which he replied, I know, but it is no longer I. Friends, that's what it looks like to put on Jesus Christ. To cast off our old life and to put on Christ is to become a new kind of human being. You're not your old you anymore. So for some of you here this morning, it's time to throw away those old clothes and put on Jesus so that we can live out this law of love more purely. Finally, and this is so beautiful, Paul, after telling us to live out this debt of love and to obey this law of love, he shows us that this is all fueled by a divine expectancy. That Christian love and obedience is fueled by a divine expectancy. Look at verse 11 and you'll see this, where Paul says, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. There's a sense of urgency in these words. Paul wants the believers to wake up and realize what time it is. What time it is. Now, what you need to know, there's two words for time in Greek. There's chronos, or chronological time. Right now, it's 10.01, and the kickoff will be at 3, right? 3.30. I don't even know that. Huge sports fan. Okay, so chronos time today at 3.30, the Super Bowl will start. But then there's another kind of time that isn't chronos time or chronological time. It's kairos time. This is divine time. This is God is with us time. It's it's an inspired season, a significant God saturated moment in time. It's divine time. And this is the kind of time, Kairos time, that Paul is talking about here. When he says, besides this, 
you know the time. More helpful translation, actually, than the ESV is now do all this because you know the time. Do this. Love this way. Cast off your works of darkness, your old sinful lifestyle, because it's Kairos time. Paul is trying to arrest us, to wake us up from our spiritual slumber and fill us with a divine sense of urgency and expectancy. It's so easy, isn't it, to become complacent and preoccupied with trivial things that don't matter eternally. Like who will take home the Super Bowl trophy today or what the funniest commercials will be. And while there's nothing wrong with these things, they often can distract us from the fact that Jesus is returning. And his salvation is actually nearer today than it was yesterday. And folks, we don't know how many more days we have left. So as the scripture says, our posture should be, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom because our time is short. So for some of you here this morning, it's time to wake up. It's time to get dressed, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make him your Lord and Savior. Because those old clothes, they don't really suit you. They don't fit you. It's time to put on Jesus. For others here today, that may mean that it's your time to get baptized. The hour is at hand. His return and salvation is nearer. We have an understanding baptism class coming up in March, but today may be the day for you to no longer put that off, to obey the Lord, and to get baptized. But for all of us, River West, as I was praying this week, it is the time for us to love. What the world needs now is it needs another revolution like the one that happened in Rome. And it's going to take the Holy Spirit being poured out and people clothed in the love of Jesus. It's going to take more than showing up to church on Sundays and just sipping coffee. It's time to get going. It's, this is our moment love. I'm going to invite the worship band up here this morning. I encourage you as, as they come up and we're going to prepare our hearts to respond this morning. What time is it for you? What is the Lord calling you to do in your life? As you were even listening to Paul's words this morning, does something need to be cast off? We're not going to rush to the table this morning. During this next song, we're going to take our time and we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal areas of our lives where there's some old clothes that need to be cast off.
And God in grace wants to clothe you in his love this morning, a love that we do not deserve. A love that was purchased by the pure and spotless blood of Christ. That's why we come to the table. It's because our God in grace has clothed us in love. And there's no reason now to live in shame of the things that are weighing you down. God's arms are open wide and he wants to clothe us in his divine love this morning so that our world might see that there's a loving savior with arms open for them. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I sense this morning that these words that Paul wrote and sent to the church, there's a a sense, Lord, that this wake-up call is also for us. Help us to see, Lord, that the, the night is over. The day is at hand. Your son Jesus is coming to set our broken world right and to rule and reign. But you are here this morning and you're with us. And pray, Lord, that you would move in power and grace and that you would clothe us with love this morning. There may be somebody here and even hearing Paul's words this morning, you're realizing that this moment right here that you want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want him to be your savior. You can pray very simply this morning and say, Lord, I need you. I believe that you died for my sins. That you rose again. Clothe me in your love. Pray that prayer from your heart. Today is a day of salvation. Father, please teach us to number our days so that we can live with love that's greater and brighter than all the darkness in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you, River West.